Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel. Wow. <laughs> Rebecca Lynch, <laughs> Robert Craig, they're both here. Rebecca Lynch is with the Wisconsin Working Families. Rebecca, good to have you here. Good to be here, Matt. And Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Good morning, everyone. So it is a beautiful August uh, Thursday morning, and we're recording, and we have a lot to talk about this week. Lots been going on. It's great to have us all in one place. Um, obviously, there's it's not been a great week in terms of the news, and uh, we're going to start by talking about the shootings, right, that, that occurred over the weekend. Um, and in particular, we... I'm not going to get into the details of them. They've been discussed um, significantly. But we want to talk a little bit about the response here in Wisconsin in, in particular. Uh, both our, our federal but also in-state um, leaders in terms of the response to the shootings. It is worth pointing out that almost uh, pretty quickly early this week, Governor Evers and other Democrats started pushing for both background checks and red flag laws. But immediately, unlike some other states, and including the president, who signaled some interest, or at least interest willingness to talk. For now, for now. For the moment. In the current media cycle. But in Ohio, for example, the Ohio Republican governor was very quick to move quickly to try to um, address this. Yes, Mike DeWine. Not so much here, though. Mike DeWine, not a progressive guy at all. No, no. Now, and admittedly, one of the shootings was in Ohio. Hits a little more close to home, apparently, but... Not here, and I want to talk about that. Um, both Senator Johnson and, and even more specifically uh, S- uh, Speaker Voss, Boss Voss and Fitzgerald, were pretty clear that nothing's going to happen. They, it's the classic, we're willing to sit down and talk, but we're not going to do anything. Thoughts uh, and any, any uh, from our panel? I mean, I'm interested to hear what the two of you think, but my first immediate thoughts are there is nothing about Wisconsin that's any different than Ohio or any of the other places across the country that we've seen these like horrific mass shootings. And I think that, you know, folks used to always say, well, it can't happen here. And then it does. And that's the response you most often hear after these shootings. It can happen anywhere and it will happen, I think, is the lesson that we're getting from from, you know, the past few years. And so it's it's not a question of if Wisconsinites will be victimized by a mass shooter. It's it's a question of when, and I hate to say that, but like that is the reality that like we as constituents need to confront our elected officials with. Well, it's and, terrifying. And it happened actually. We're what, what was a four year anniversary of the 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 seat shooting at, here at, in Oak Creek, totally. right? So yes, we're literally four years removed, and not only just a shooting, but a shooting that had the racist, white supremacist, terrorist tinge here in Oak Creek, clearly targeting uh, Sikhs, that is also embedded in the discussion of what's been going on this week. Not just shootings, but literally white supremacist, uh, t- terrorist activities. So there, there are several layers of this, just at the broader level of will government actually solve big problems that concern people, this just, unfortunately, this further delegitimizes government. It actually hurts progressives, even though it's Republicans and conservatives doing it. Uh, and we need to be aware that what's happened is, is the extremist faction has taken over a whole major 
political party in a two-party system, and our structure is set up so that there are all these chokeholds, so that you can't do anything without a supermajority. And so they're allowing, we've always had extreme factions who believed, quite frankly, untenable things and were emotional about it, but the fact that the modern Republican Party will not cross, for the most part, uh, the gun lobby and the NRA, and there's, there's more extremism than that, and also not cross the part of the party that benefits from racism and xenophobia and, and building up hate. The disagreement in the Republican Party is how directly you do it, whether you call it invasion like Trump or whether you use dog whistles. But there's no disagreement that that's a perfectly fine way to build up power and then do what you want. And so it's very concerning that we literally are held hostage. Uh, all sorts of people who, who, who are at risk of mass shootings, all sorts of our kids have to worry about it a lot more than they'd have it. I'm not saying you could eliminate it entirely. Be, simply to appease this faction, right? So to appease the, 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 this, this far-right movement in which there's no end to the extremism. And Republican politicians play both sides. I'm looking at uh, reports in Wisconsin of Ron Johnson signaling support for red flag laws. I saw this morning he was on Fox News saying there were constitutional issues and he didn't want to do anything that might affect the Second Amendment. Like the people who drafted the Second Amendment in Philadelphia had any notion of these high-capacity weapons and unlimited access to them no matter what, that that is any reasonable interpretation of the Second Amendment, uh, either in case law up until recently when we got these right-wing judges, or in terms of original intent, which they claim to be ferreting out. But it's fascinating how original intent always comes back to modern Republican doctrine. Amazing how uh, the founding fathers and mothers were apparently right-wing uh, 21st century conservatives. I have a lot of thoughts about white supremacy, but before I t do, you have no Matt? Okay, you know, I all of that is really important, and as Robert said, there are layers, and I don't want to drown out any one layer from any other. But you, you know, I can't. I, I really want to talk about the component of white supremacy here, and particularly what Ro to touch on what Robert just said about the way in which different elected leaders are approaching this. Um, and I think what we are seeing uh, in, in these attacks, obviously, is not only, you know, white supremacy individuals who are white supremacists, but what, you know, we've known for a long time now that there are sophisticated online terror networks in this country that are growing and building on each other. And they're publishing these manifestos, which then get referenced in the next manifesto. And we have a really serious domestic terrorism problem. And I think one of the bizarre things about our notion of American exceptionalism is that we don't see the parallels between us and other countries. And I see, just from the little I know about international terrorism, a lot of parallels between what we're seeing here and what, what we've seen in other places. Um, but we could also go back in history. And you know, I'm thinking a lot about the action that we had last week here in Milwaukee. A, a group of Jews from across the state traveled to Milwaukee, did a never again action where we shut down a federal ICE facility um, for the entire day. And actually, Congresswoman Gwen Moore was there. And Gwen Moore, in response to these shootings, specifically calls out white supremacy and calls them acts of domestic terrorism. And I, I'm leading up, I'm saying all of this because I'm leading up to talking about not only the Republicans that you referenced, Robert, who maybe just do the dog whistles, but Democrats who aren't standing up 
to white white supremacy in various ways. And so we have an incredible senator in Tammy Baldwin, and she supports, she has her own bill for universal background checks. She supports red flag laws. She is, you know, says a lot of really important and, and necessary things after these shootings. She also voted in the last vote to fund ICE. She also voted to reopen the government rather than force a solution for dreamers. And I say that not to beat up on Tammy Baldwin, but to draw the link, right, that if we allow, if, if we allow our democratic leaders to, to vote to fund ICE without challenging it, there is a direct linkage between the building of you know, the dehumanization of an entire group of people, of Latino people in this country from the top, from the president at his rallies, from his government and official communications, and the machinery that they're building. And any support for that, even if it's not shouting racist slurs, is part of this growing trend that's creating this really heartbreaking climate of fear for, for Latinx people in this country. And it, it's a terrifying time. To be to be someone who's an immigrant or to be to be Latino. It is worth pointing out, Robert. I'll give you the last word on this before we go to break. But as we're recording this morning, it's being announced about the ice raids that are occurring in Mississippi at the food processing plants, and we have over 600 people being arrested. So, um, it's I just wanted to point that out. As you mentioned, the agreement that allowed ICE to be funded again, it's continuing. It looks like it's it's stepping up its operations, Robert. Yeah, I want to particularly point out a critical thing Rebecca said, and that is it's not just the Republicans. It's not just Trump. One only true thing Trump is saying is, is that this stuff all started before Trump, which is doubtless true. He's just tried to capitalize on it in a gross way. Um, but when I was watching the debate, I was at the People's Action Board Retreat. That's a national network we're in, and there are a lot of Latina and Latino leaders who run other state affiliates in states like Colorado and Arizona and Massachusetts uh, that are like our kind of organization, Citizen Action Wisconsin, and I was sitting watching the debate with them, and the governor, Governor Bullock from Montana, during the debate, literally castigated the other the, the progressives on the panel, uh, Warren and Sanders, saying that if we gave uh, undocumented people free health care, then we'd have a tenfold increase in people rushing the border. Well, he didn't uh, say something directly dehumanizing, but he he traded on that image that there are these hordes of people that somehow shouldn't have the same rights as other people. And so it's way softer, and it's not the way Trump is and white supremacists is, but we can't trade on those emotions. There's a fundamental dehumanization that we have to, to deal with. And when you get to that, you get to Juan Castro's position that why on earth should be crossing the international border be some kind of felony that you get thrown in jail from and get, get separated from your children for? With that, we're going to have to take a break. We'll talk more. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Before we left, we were talking about just a really tra tragic week, particularly around the shootings, but also not just discussing as shootings, talking about these as white supremacist terrorism. And Rebecca, I know you had some follow-up thoughts that you wanted to make sure right after the break. So to you first. Yeah, totally. And there's so much that we could talk about. You know, I, I saw in the news, I think yesterday, that uh, authorities believe that in the uh, Garlic Festival shooting, the shooter was involved in incel groups and other kind of... So, I mean, there's so much we could unpack that I, that is really important to talk about. But I just wanted to respond to what Robert said at the end of the last segment 
um, you know, s uh, about the distinction between what's happening now versus what's happened before. And certainly not to, to sugarcoat the what happened before. I mean, many folks who are listening were involved in the not one more uh, protests against deportations under, under the uh, Obama administration. And President Obama really did increase very heavily uh, deportations in this country, uh, particularly of Latinx immigrants. But what we're seeing now uh, is not only an increase in the number of people who are being targeted and deported, but a sophistication of the machinery of government being um, built in that direction. And I think, you know, it's really important to point that out because as I mentioned in the last segment, so much of this is reminiscent of history if we're talking about what happened in Europe in the 1940s. So much of it is reminiscent of what we see in the present day in other countries. But we have uh, the, a Trump administration that's doing a couple of key reinforcing things. One. The head of state is dehumanizing the entire population of people, comparing them to animals, using slurs, um, really just, you know, Robert mentioned the imagery of the hordes of people that come from the Republican Party. He's doing this at large rallies. He's doing it in official communications. His, his government agencies and appointees are doing this in all manners of policymaking. And really from the top down, what we're hearing is real dehumanizing language against an entire group of people. Coupled with that, we have the Trump administration's, you know, we've talked about this in, on the show in the past, uh, what, what President Trump is doing around deportation is not just increasing how many people are deported, but creating a mass deportation force. And we talk a lot up in here in Wisconsin about 287G because we have sheriffs past and present who have applied to the federal government to be a part of that program. But for folks who don't know what that is, it's a program that gets localities federal funding to deputize local sheriffs to be ICE agents. And so imagine, and I actually don't know, and I should look this up, but let's say a thousand sheriffs across the country have been deputized in this fashion. If there was a news headline that President Trump had hired a thousand new ICE agents to live in small towns across America to be a part of this force, it, people would sit up and take notice. And essentially that's what's happened, right? That we've increased many fold the number of people who are who have the authority of ICE agents in our communities, in the heartland, throughout this country. Um, and it, it, the purpose of it is not only to, again, increase deportations now, but to create this machinery to do mass deportations. And so I think that's like really important. And then to tie it back into the conversation that we were having last segment, you know, all of this, um, you know, hatred and dehumanization and reorienting the state in that way, um, not only in rhetoric, but in policy and in infrastructure, is reinforcing the online domestic terror networks of white supremacists. And those networks, in turn, are boosting this administration. And so I, I just wanted to draw, I mean, I don't want to get too far off base, but that, that's a distinction that I wanted to draw because I think it's really important and I wish that more elected officials saw it in that way so that they could call it out in every aspect that we see it because um, they all are so interrelated. It is worth pointing out, I mentioned that there were the hu these huge raids this morning as we're recording. There were over 600 ICE agents that participated in those raids where they, elect where they arrested 600 people. So we're almost one-to-one -one agent for person they're going after. So speaking of a large force that's been set up, that they were able to mobilize 600 ICE agents. And the early reports I heard before we went to recording talked about just how amazing the operation was and how prepared they were the processing and just as you said the the mechanisms 
to, to do this, the deportion and, and how prepared they were. So in huge, our name, yes, in yes. our name with our money. Ab- absolutely. Robert. Yeah, I think Rebecca makes a really good point about the machinery of it. And one of the shocking things, it's, we're not to that level yet. It's just that we're on some sort of journey that needs to be stopped to gain to that level. But just if you think about Nazi Germany, the machinery of government all being aligned for such a purpose is one of the scary things if you yeah. read the history, right? I mean, there has to be this whole apparatus to carry it out, right? And that, and that is, what's bizarre is the modern American right, which still parades around the, with the word conservative, the people who founded conservatism, like, like, like an Edmund Burke, would find this unrecognizable. You're creating this huge machinery of oppression, right? And building these the xenophobic ideas. And it's not just here. It's international. It's destroyed the EU. It uh, toppled the uh, Merkel uh, administration in Germany. It led to Brexit. There have been mass killings in Sweden and New Zealand, places as far f- afield as that. And the the, the, uh, immigration uh, terror in uh, Europe is around uh, immigrants from North Africa and from the Middle East, often in many ways um, exasperated not just by global warming but by our foreign policy. Like we're the ones who decided to invade Iraq for no good reason, right, and and then to stabilize Syria, et cetera. And so what we have to get to is this is a, a world phenomenon. Trump in one way is a symptom of something he just capitalized on. He didn't invent it, but he's also now become a cause, right? And I think that Democrats are still searching for the difference between, oh, we're going to be reasonable and we're going to be balanced versus taking it head on, taking the dehumanization head on. And it's very problematic. I mentioned the last segment, the governor of Montana, in a polite way, ramping up fears of hordes of people coming, he didn't use the word hordes, but, you know, doing it politely, coming across the border if we have Medicare for all, right? We can't trade on those emotions anymore, and then we have to get people to, in, in, in fact, even it cre- if it creates short-term uh, political issues for us, right, we have to get people to focus on the better angels of their nature. And you think, if you want to think about a plus side, it's the reaction against this, it's also the reaction against family separation, which is a way of understanding how brutal and unhuman this is. I mean, who? it's amazing that we have, a, we have a part of our country that literally cheers the separation of families and essentially the torture of kids in these in, internment camps, and they are internment camps. And so we need to take it head on, but we also need to solve people's problems. That's another reason that a tepid response is bad, because if people are suffering and they give them this rationale that it's the immigrants, right, which is a natural human tendency to blame the other, right, we need a constructive response to the, pro- to the, to thing that, the frustrations that's causing people to be vulnerable to this sort of attack. I think the final thing I want to say, because I know we should say something about Foxconn before we end, a little bit anyway, and that is, it wouldn't be the show if we didn't mention Foxconn. We should be a little bit careful about some of the expansion of the FBI that some Democrats are talking about to, to treat it like terrorism into domestic affairs. But we could talk about that on the show. But Matt, I know you want to get to the fact that, surprisingly, there's more bad news about Foxconn, huh? Well, I do. I do want to get to that. I do want to point out before we go, and, and this is, again, this issue is split, right? There's the white supremacy, but then the connection to the guns and the gun state. It is worth pointing out that um, Chris Taylor did call for the resignation 
of Speaker Voss this week for his completely inept sort of response to it all and saying that not only did Trump, you know, suggest openness to red flag laws and other things, but we, we talked earlier about the Ohio governor and for them to just sort of be so obstinate that it just shows how to touch. So there is at least an attempt on that aspect or flank of this discussion uh, I'd to call really it, call out. I'd call it callous disregard. Yeah. Inept is no. too kind. Yeah, that is a good point. So we do need to, I want to talk about Foxconn before we go to the break. Um, a, new, a new report, a new study came out this week uh, that showed that Foxconn jobs are going to probably end up costing the state, on a good day, 172000 a job. On a bad day, 190000 over a quarter of a million dollars per job. This sounds like a great deal. I wonder who. It's, I wonder why we're still in it. It's six to ten times more per job than what is standard in the already kind of gross economic development world that we need to reform generally. And by the way, the number may sound, uh, uh, you know, kind of similar to what you've heard before because I had read the Upjohn reports and I had given a similar number during my testimony against the deal originally when they ran it through. In a in an all in a nearly all night well into the wee hours of the morning hearing, where all the business leaders of the state and and, and the university officials who were trying to curry favor lined up and said it would be great. And by the way, the he, the illegitimate head of uh, of of WEDEC, Mark Hogan, who's in it because of the lame duck legislation until September first, disputes the findings. <laughs> I think we can just say period. We don't really need to re- dispute yeah. or refute yeah. Mr. Hogan. On that note, he negotiated um, the deal. Everyone, just yeah. so you know. And his agency can't track jobs. It's fine. They'll track them. It's all good in Foxconn world. Um, Before we uh, take a break, I do also want to highlight for folks who may have missed it, uh, Representative Jimmy Anderson has a a response to to Speaker Voss. We'll have a link to it. Uh, It was in the AP. It's it's worth reading. Um, And we talked extensively last week about what Voss did to Jimmy Anderson. But uh, please take a look at that. But with that, we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by State Senator John Erpenbach to talk about the introduction of new legislation to expand federal... (laughs) Excuse me. We call it golden oldies. (laughs) New legislation... to take the Medicaid money, something that we ought to be doing. But we'll have Representative, or excuse me, Senator Erpenbach right after the break. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are going to talk about a new bill that was introduced this week. Uh, We're very excited about it. It is a bill to, again, to accept the federal Medicaid money, which we know did not happen in the state budget. Uh, but immediately, uh, we're going to get back into the fight. And this week, um, Governor Evers and a number of state legislators uh, gathered in Wauwatosa to introduce it. And one of those state legislators is State Senator John Erpenbach, who joins us to talk more about the introduction and uh, the plans to actually get this Medicaid money accepted. Senator Erpenbach, thanks for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. So you're a long, you've been long in this fight for health care. Tell us, tell us more about this new front here and the introduction of the bill here this week to accept the Medicaid money. Yeah, this has kind of been a frustrating uh, issue if you take a look at the, the history of the issue, but that doesn't mean we're, we're giving up. Uh, you know, having a Democratic governor and, and using the bully pulpit in a way that really underscores 
the idea of the Medicaid expansion on several different fronts is a very, very good thing. So uh, Representative Dan Reamer and I, uh, along with uh, Governor Evers, <clears throat> excuse me, did a press conference uh, to talk about the introduction of legislation to take the Medicaid expansion. And there is absolutely no reason not to. The Republicans are out of excuses for taking it. Um, you can't say that you are a fiscal responsible Republican legislator when you're turning down hundreds of millions of dollars that rightfully belong to Wisconsin taxpayers uh, because they think it's welfare. It's not welfare. It is simply helping low-income people in the state of Wisconsin who don't qualify right now to help them out with their insurance. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and it saves the state a tremendous amount of money. Um, we are now becoming a minority in the nation when the Affordable Care Act happened. You know, a couple of states, the states took the expansion, and then as the years progressed, you know, you have uh, some of the more conservative states in, in the country taking the Medicaid expansion. So, yeah, it's been frustrating, but, you know, we're not giving up, and, and hopefully we'll, um, we'll get a little farther along the process this time around with the legislation. Uh, Senator, this is uh, Robert. Thanks very much for your advocacy, and you were extremely good on Joint Finance Committee, one of our four Democrats on it, uh, fighting for this in the budget. I wonder, you know, you're a real lawmaker. You're trying to get things done in Madison. Mm -hmm. You're not there for your health. And you do try to work on relationships with the other side and figure out how you can find common ground and actually make government work. I'm wondering, you mentioned the welfare argument. I've assumed the welfare argument was just a talking point they came up with uh, with their pollsters that might justify their position and that their real reasons are different than that. And I'm wondering your opinion on that. What is their real reason for opposing something? Because no other state is doing this. No, no other state is paying more to cover fewer people, not even the other 13 states that aren't taking the Medicaid expansion money. And so it's this bizarre election year thing that Walker did when he was running for president to try to not be horribly vulnerable by cutting health care too much in Wisconsin, but also not take any part of Obamacare. And it makes no sense at any level. You're covering fewer people from, for more money, turning down all this federal money. Um, it just anyone who hears about it, I remember that um, uh, when the former governor of Ohio, Governor Kasich, was running for president, he seemed baffled to try to explain why Walker's position made any sense. So back to the question, what do you think's really behind this, um, this kind of stubbornness on their part? Right, and, and you pretty much nailed the history, Robert. The reason they didn't take it, the Republicans didn't take it in the first place, was Scott Walker was running for governor. And in order to come out of a primary field or, or give your, yourself a chance, you have to be, you know, the conservative of the conservatives. And the uh, governor at the time, Governor Walker, didn't want anything to do not only with the Affordable Care Act, but anything to do with President Obama's administration, whether it was taking money for broadband, uh, high-speed rail, uh, Medicaid expansion, whatever, he just kept on saying no. And, you know, that might make him look good in certain circles, but to Wisconsin taxpayers, it was a stupid thing to do simply because that's our money. And whenever the federal government says, here, take your money back, and yet there might be some strings attached, that that's still our money. So now that Scott Walker is gone, they're running out of excuses. And yeah, you know, the, the, the term welfare pulls well if you're a conservative, but it's interesting because if you listen to the Republicans back in their district, like Howard Markline, you know, he'll, he'll go back home to his district in southwestern Wisconsin and say he's absolutely open to the idea of the Medicaid expansion. Luther Olson, 
uh, who's uh, from central Wisconsin, said he thought it would happen this time. Uh, but so they say one thing back in their districts, but when they get here to Madison, uh, they vote against it at any opportunity they get. So the idea that you have, and this is what's really frustrating, you have legislators with full health care benefits paid for by the taxpayers saying no to hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to cover people who make, you know, nine bucks an hour uh, with, with some sort of badger care type program. They're saying no to that. And, uh, again, it's really frustrating uh, to, to have to deal with, with some of my colleagues on this particular issue because, Robert, you know, if this legislation got to the floor, it passed overwhelmingly with strong bipartisan support. But it's not going to get there yet simply because you've got Scott Fitzgerald and Robin Boss, the leader of the uh, Senate and the Assembly, who are standing in the way of this thing. So, yeah, in the end, um, you know, I still think we're going to get there, and I think we're going to do the right thing with the money and make sure that we're covering people uh, that, that should be covered. But it also frees up more money to do other things, you know, like K-12 education or, or whatever the case may be. So, I, I, you know, I believe we'll get there. So we were told that, uh, senator by multiple Republican senators that even if they supported it and they would tell us privately they did and their member, their constituents who are our members who are in their office, that Robin Fitzgerald, um, Robin Voss had so much of a strangle on the assembly with that supermajority, a very legitimate supermajority, as we know, that was based on gerrymandered districts, not the popular vote, that why would they want to st- cross their own party because it still would never happen? Uh, do you think that was a factor on the Senate side, that they some of them might have stepped out, but why do it if you know that it still will never become law because of Robin Voss and that supermajority in the state assembly? Well, I don't know. If you take a look at Howard Markline's comments or Luther Olson's comments about uh, you know possibly supporting a Medicaid expansion piece of legislation, whether it was in the budget or outside, they're both still on finance. They weren't punished. And at some point in time, you know, I understand – leadership because i've been in it before and it's a difficult thing to do but at some point in time if your leader is saying no to something that you know should be yes you know caucus members need to break away or sit down and talk with the leader and say look we need to do this um but it, it and <laughs> the frustrating part about all of this too i mean i keep on using the word frustrating is the fact that <clears throat> the people who are voting against it their districts would be impacted uh, in a positive way, in, in certain parts of the state, the most. And, and they're saying no to, you know, thousands of people in their district who might qualify for this simply because, uh, you know, their leadership is telling them not to. So, you know, if, if this is um, something that polls at about 70% statewide, people favor it. I know the Republicans are, you know, continuing to hear it back in their district, and, and we're coming up on an election cycle pretty soon, and, and this is going to be a fairly big issue in, in, in anybody's re-election, whether they support it or not. Um, so, yeah, we, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. We're going to get there at some point in time, uh, and, and we will take the expansion. And, you know, it's not going to be one of those point your fingers, say, see, told you so. It's just going to be making sure that, that we as legislators do the right thing and working with the governor and taking the expansion and being responsible uh, about it. So... Folks, it's really, really important. The only way we're going to overcome Voss's and uh, Fitzgerald's sort of stranglehold is through public pressure. This uh, piece of legislation is open for co-sponsorship through Monday of next week. We want to and are encouraging everyone to call your state legislators. They need to be signed on. In particular, if you have a Republican state legislator, 
um, please call them. It's not only Luther Olson and Markline uh, that have uh, suggested they would support this. Testin, Petrowski, there's a bunch of them. We need them Koyunga. to be called. Koyunga. They need Koyunga, absolutely. They need to be called and told this is the time to step on and co-sponsor it. We need to flood their offices uh, today and over the weekend and all day Monday. And by the way, we can continue calling them in, in through this period. They can at any time jump on and become a co-sponsor. So that is what we want to encourage our listeners to do to keep the pressure on. Uh, as Senator Erpenbach pointed out, this is going to be an election issue. We will make it an election issue, but uh, keeping the pressure on while these legislative pieces are out there is absolutely critical in the public eye. So, folks, make those calls in. We'll have the hotline number on the website, uh, you know, email, but try to make phone calls in and really encourage the co-sponsorship. Robert, you got one last Yeah, thing? Senator, any uh, Republican co-sponsors yet? You're taking the uh, co-sponsorships in your office. Uh, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> so, folks, please make those calls, particularly on the Senate side. We really need to get uh, get the pressure into their office. But, uh, Senator Erpenbach, we want to thank you for your leadership on this issue, uh, not only just this issue specifically of Medicaid, but health care. You've been a leader for decades on this issue, and we really appreciate it. And, of course, this week getting this uh, bill back going and, and coming on the show. So thank you so much. All right, thanks. Talk to you guys soon. All right, great. And with that, folks, we got to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. We'll be back after. But again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Really excited. Uh, we have a special guest with us, one of our organizers, uh, co-op organizers from northwestern Wisconsin, and uh, that organizer is Noah Reed. Noah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's good to be on. Thanks for having me. So, Noah, the reason we had you on is uh, you are doing something real exciting this weekend and in upcoming weekends uh, that is starting to take a look towards 2020 elections. But doing it now in terms of getting out and talking to voters in really important parts of the state about what's been going on and, and what they're up to. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about what you're up to with your uh, Northwest Co-op organizing uh, comrades? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think it's something that, you know, Matt, we've obviously talked about, but now I get to share that uh, we know there there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure going into 2020. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of excitement. But ultimately, we know how big of a challenge it's going to be in certain areas of the state. Um, but with that being said, we are really focusing up in northwest Wisconsin and I know across the state with the rest of our co-ops are really starting to think about what does it mean to really be out in front of all these issues. You know, we don't just want to be kind of we don't want to just be asking and being please sir can i have some more really late in the day we want to be some of the people who are shaping these conversations and i think we're starting to do that very successfully uh and i think our biggest play going into 2020 is really going to be having those conversations in targeted districts uh all across the state but in northwest wisconsin i know we have a couple where we think there's a good chance to uh really get some progressive-minded candidates running in there and make sure that we're highlighting the importance of the issues of people on the ground. So it's instead of like having a campaign, you know, a candidate that fits a pre-kind of scripted campaign, 
we're really building a campaign around the candidates who are going to be out there, who are leading on our movement politics and are, you know, leading on, um, like, the issues that matter to progressive Wisconsinites and people across the state. So, Noah, tell us what what you're going to be doing this Saturday, and it's in Black River Falls, but uh, give us the details on, on what you're up to. Right. So uh, this Saturday we are going to be having a uh, deep canvassing uh uh, training and then a canvas in Black River Falls. It's going to be taking place at 10 a.m. Uh, on August 10th at Revolution Coffee uh, in Black River Falls, where you know, we'd love to have as many people out there as possible. We're going to have some folks coming down from different parts of the co-op to kind of support the work that we're all doing together to make sure that we're training folks on how to have difficult conversations because a lot of us, you know, we, we're passionate, we all care about the issues, but it can be really it can be hard to take that next leap sometime uh, to, you know, be, you know, doors can be very scary and political conversations can be scary. So our training really aims to make it a lot more accessible. And it's something that turns what can be a really scary conversation into a much more positive conversation. And one where not only you, but the person you're having that conversation with feel like you really made an impact and that you've moved the discussion forward. So, so this you're going to do this on Saturday in Black River Falls, and then if I'm correct, you're you're going to have some more of these, and and these are things we, quite frankly, we we should get more folks doing in other parts of the state. Yeah, absolutely. We have uh, obviously the one scheduled for this Saturday in Black River Falls, but on August 17th, which is the next Saturday after the recording, uh, we will be in Menominee, and we're going to go and do the same thing there. I'm really focused personally on getting outside of like comfort zone i'm based in eau claire so you know it's one thing to set up an issue canvas in eau claire we go out that's great and uh and i think it's really important and you should if you're in eau claire and listening to this podcast i'm happy to set up a training with you and get you all ready to go but ultimately i think we have to realize that there are a bunch of people outside of our traditional places where we get organizing structure so if you're listening to this in the Hudson or New Richmond or, you know, Jackson, Trempolo, Buffalo County, you know, anywhere in the northwest part of the state, or ultimately, I'd like it to be anywhere in the state. Uh, I'd really like to, you know, if you're interested in having a canvas that's based on this kind of like script and this kind of training, um, I really encourage you to, you know, reach out probably to Matt. But again, I will, I'm sure Matt will have my contact info in the show notes. Why don't and, you give it, Noah? Why don't you give your contact yeah. info if anyone wants to reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. You can get a hold of me at 262 uh, 343. 6163. That's just a cell, so text me and let me know who you are so I can do my best to get in touch with you for these issue canvassing. And then my email is publicly listed on the Citizen Action Co-op page. Uh, so it's just N-O-A-H period R-E-I-F at citizenactionwi.org. Well, Noah, first of all, we want to thank you for pulling this together. We think this kind of work is super important to go out and really just start doing a lot of listening and, and better understanding where folks are at in order to to uh, be more effective in, in our work mm-hmm. and, and, and getting more folks out there doing this volunteering and uh, talking to their neighbors. So um, right. thanks a lot. One other thing that I want to let our listeners know that's pretty exciting about this is you've been partnering with some of the local electeds up there and, and their involvement uh, in this. Uh, talk a little bit more about that because I think that's critical that 
you know, some of, and these are newly elected folks that have a different orientation to doing this work. Absolutely. So, uh, and you kind of highlighted it too. It's really the campaigns that we ran out of here in 2018, they were very, uh, our members who ran very much focused on listening, on sharing a conversation and really having those difficult conversations with folks and running as unabashed progressives. You know, the messaging might be different, but the core tenants are there. So we're very happy, like Jeff Smith, who's obviously the old organizer at Citizen Action and now serves in the Senate, is very supportive of this work. He's very excited. Uh, we're looking at setting some up with him coming up very soon. Uh, and Jody Emerson, will, who's also a co-op member, will be joining us at our Menominee Canvas on the 17th. So if you happen to be an elected who is... Uh, you know, a, uh, would be interested in partnering with us and like, you know, getting to know more and like having these deep conversations with people in your district, I think it would be a great opportunity to reach out. And again, my contact information is there. And we think that really aligns with the principle we talk about, which is shared governance and making sure that people have a seat at the table and that we're having these difficult conversations and not just, you know, punting people around as a political football. Well, thanks so much, Noah. Really appreciate you taking the time and doing this. So again, folks, this Saturday, get out in Black River Falls, 10 o'clock, Revolution Coffee, following weekend in Menominee. Noah, we really appreciate you uh, joining us here on the podcast. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Folks, please, the uh, I know 2020 elections may seem far away, but uh, the work is really getting started, and uh, it's, uh, it's great to have really great organizers <laughs> like Noah who is already planning and thinking ahead and uh, great leaders up there in that cooperative to, to make this work happen. But before we go, we have a few more things we definitely uh, want to make sure we talk about. Um, one of them is we're having our annual Brewfest fundraiser Thursday, September 19th here in Milwaukee. It's the same place we were last year, the Coakley Brothers. Um, we will have, that's on 6th Street, I believe, right, Brian? Yeah, somewhere right around there. <laughs> um, we're very near our office. We'll have, obviously, all the contact info. But we're looking for folks to co-sponsor. If you want to commit to uh, 50 bucks or more, we'll throw you on as a co-sponsor. We're really looking to have a good turnout. Uh, it's the only real annual fundraiser we do. It's a lot of fun. So hopefully you can make it again Thursday, September 19th. Also... I want to remind folks, we're going to be looking to take a bus full of folks to Des Moines, Iowa. And September 21st, I believe it is, uh, we'll have the details again on the website. Uh, but this is for a presidential forum. Uh, should be a lot of fun. And we'll, uh, we know that a uh, number of the progressive candidates will definitely be there. But Rebecca, I know you have some news, too, about uh, Working Families Party. We mentioned before that you're going to have a number of videos and that were going to be released, and you have news. Yeah, so we're, um, for folks who didn't hear last week, um, the Working Families Party, which you know many Citizen Action members are, are also a member of and we're closely allied with Citizen Action People's yeah. Action, um, we have our presidential endorsement process going as well. We're slated to make a pretty early endorsement, so I think maybe one of the first groups to really endorse it will be sometime in September. And right now we're in the phase of having our candidate interviews. So uh, these are going to be happening starting on the 13th, which is Monday. No, Tuesday. Starting on Tuesday, we have our Elizabeth Warren interview. Uh, starts at 5 p.m. Central Time. Then on Wednesday, we are on Thursday. Um, 
sorry. Yeah. So Tuesday, Warren. Thursday, Castro. That'll be at 7 p.m. Central Time. Uh, Julian Castro. And then we've got Bernie on Saturday. And I think the time is a little bit in flux, but that'll be in, I believe, South Carolina. So they'll be all over the country, but they'll be live streamed. Folks are doing watch parties. I think there's one at Bounce Milwaukee. There's all over Milwaukee and, and anywhere in the state. Folks can host a watch party. And I shared the information with Brian and Matt. So it'll be hopefully in the show notes. But sign up to do a watch party, watch from home on the live stream, um, go to another watch party that's happening. You can also, if you are a member of the Working Families Party, which I know many of you are, uh, you can participate on Crowdcast, which I think People's Action also uses, but it's a super cool platform um, where you could interact with other members, suggest questions, upvote questions. Um, so just another option of a, a way to engage. But we're really excited. These are going to be interviews that are going to allow people to really showcase their platforms, but we're also going to ask necessary and tough questions. So, And I think that's what's important, right? There's plenty of venues to see these candidates, but when groups like... Working Families Party, us, People's Action, right? We're really going to focus in on uh, on challenge them on their platform. So that is unique. Make sure you watch those videos. But with that, we got to wrap it up. We want to thank Senator John Erpenbach for joining us on the podcast and talking about the Medicaid expansion. We also want to thank Noah Reef, our organizer in western Wisconsin, and her uh, canvassing that she is doing this Saturday uh, at 10 o'clock. So please get out in Black River Falls for that. But with that, we got to go. We'll see you next week at the Battleground Wisconsin.